0: Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated, I'm Darren Leslie and this week I am joined by Sam Elliott. Sam has been a classroom teacher since 2016. Having grown up, lived in and taught in deprived areas, Sam possesses key insights into misbehaviour that many teachers lack. These experiences informed his approaches in his trainee and NQ2 years which combined with his research into behaviour psychology have since given rise to a pedagogy that borrows from both traditional and progressive philosophies, which Sam has included in his outstanding book, Asbo Teacher, An Irreverent Guide to Surviving in Challenging Classrooms. And if you haven't done so already, I'd urge you to stop the podcast now and go and buy Sam's book. It is a mixture of hilarious anecdotes from his classroom experiences and it's also informed hugely by Sam's reading of education books and literature. In the podcast, I asked Sam to set his key insights into why students are naughty in the classroom and he shares some wonderful stories from his own experience. I also asked Sam to describe what is meant by a waste man teacher and in this he describes his formative years. We then discuss behaviour management and why as Sam says we should stop begging it and I asked Sam to explain why the relationships with pupils comes through the learning. I asked Sam about what he means by de-individuation which he writes about in the book and he shares a wonderful anecdote around a pupil that he names Dalton McFlurry. We then look into Sam's pedagogy in class and we begin by discussing quizzing and how he used quizzing to help a class gain confidence. We then explore the nuts and bolts of lesson instruction and feedback that Sam outlines in his book Asbo Teacher. And I ask him to give us advice on starters, plenaries, assessment, and marking. And I also ask Sam if we should bother with homework. We then explore Sam's uh, wonderful method and approach for seating plans, which he names the Hundred Flowers Techniques. I asked Sam to tell me about planning, why overplanning inevitably fails, and why we should consider using more textbooks. I asked Sam about how he develops his own subject knowledge and he shares a fascinating insight into how he uses flashcards for his own learning so that he develops a really strong and deep subject knowledge i asked sam why teacher-led question is optimal and then we discuss how to take on a cover class and win and we close with how sam closes his book as a teacher with the idea that he writes about is in that teaching is my sport and i love that as a pe teacher i certainly agree that teaching is my sport also so If you like what you hear, let's dive right in to listen to what Sam says and how he describes teaching to be his sport. Sam Elliott, thanks so much for coming on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you?
1: Very good today, Darren. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. So as I said in my introduction, uh, I've no long finished reading your book, Asmo Teacher, An Irreverent Guide to Surviving in Challenging Classrooms, and I absolutely loved it. And I said so on, on social media as well. There's so much gold in there in, in the stories. It's Equally as hilarious as it is informative, so thank you for that. And we're going to unpick some of the thinking in that book, some of the ideas and strategies that teachers can uh, pick up and run with um, when they get back into their classroom. So before we do that, can you share a little bit bit about you and your career in education to date, please?
1: Yeah, so essentially part of the reason I got into education was because I had a sense that it wasn't really providing for me when I was younger. And I do wanna say from the outset that that's no fault of any particular teacher really. I think I was always gonna be a difficult kid, um, largely because of my peer groups, the people I was hanging around with. Essentially when I was growing up, it was all about Lacoste tracksuits, Air Max trainers and bottles of Glens vodka. And if it didn't fit into any of those categories, I wasn't particularly interested. But obviously, as I say in the book, it had it did get me in quite a lot of trouble. And as I said, I've said in another interview as well, that um, essentially my parents lost their livelihood and I had no choice but to educate myself after getting some pr- pretty... They weren't great GCSEs, they were five Cs, which for perspective, if you've got... Um, less than five c's you can't really go to sixth form or anything so i got literally the bare minimum to get into sixth form and then i educated myself essentially with the assistance of some great teachers who i've been chatting about chatting to on a social media recently as well Um, but yeah essentially i largely educated myself with the aid of textbooks so what that did was that gave me the drive i suppose to go into teaching I was around 24 I think when I entered the profession um, and I started off as a grad, what they call a graduate learning coach in work. so that job was essentially, it was essentially all of the miscellaneous jobs that the other members of staff did not want to do, so it was kind of like a dustbin job essentially, like you would do everything that the other teachers had binned off and weren't interested in. So. I taught these literacy classes for kids who couldn't go to um, Spanish, for instance, or French. They couldn't do those languages. So they were, you know, put into these little literacy classes with Mr. Elliot, which was obviously fun and games because um, I'd never taught a class in my life. And um, these kids sensed it pretty much straight away. At uh, The moment I walked in, I think they're rubbing their hands together, thinking it was open season. Um, and yeah, that's something I describe in the book. Um, and I go into quite a lot of detail about that waste man teacher the chapter's called but I really wanted to detail it as um, I wanted to detail it as explicitly as I could what I'd been through the very the various different tactics that pupils have for catching you off guard um, but what it did was it actually spurred me on because I was so bad at teaching that I felt compelled to improve if only for the sake of making that one year A little bit easier um because i was only going to stay in it for a year or so i wasn't um i never really said to myself i want to become a teacher or this is something i want to do forever um i always thought the people who did that i almost wonder where they were taught where they've been taught because when i was growing up these teachers would be walking around school with a jaded apathetic um look to them and i'd feel sorry for them so yeah i never had any aspirations really of becoming a teacher and I, I did largely do it as a stopgap, but because I was bad at it and because I saw some slight improvement I became invested in it and I continued and then I continued until training as a PGCE, NQT and then RQT um, etc.
0: Brilliant and um, which led to you writing writing the book so we're going to kind of go through a kind of follow the same kind of what I'm trying to say is follow the same route as the book, book take with the, with the questions I'm going to ask, starting with some some of the anecdotal stories and then blend it into some more practical strategies that can really help classroom teachers. But when you start off early in the book talking about why students are naughty. So can you give us some of your key insights there? Why are students naughty?
1: I say in the book, I say something like, um, it's almost like because it's there. And even then, that doesn't really cover it. I think for me and my friends, it wasn't like because it's there, like it was because it was funny. And given the choice between staring at a piece of work and potentially having to exert some kind of cognitive effort, why would you choose to do that when you can just rip into your teacher for an hour? And I know (laughs) it sounds quite savage, but I am just being honest about it. You know, I remember me and my friends would convene at break and lunch before whatever teacher we had. And we'd say, oh, this guy's going to get terrored, or this guy's going to get, you know, we're going to... This will be a good one. This will be a laugh. Um, And the sorts of stories that I've got, into a lot of stuff I left out of the book, largely because they didn't fit into a larger narrative arc. But to give you a couple of examples, I mean, I remember this one teacher. He was my history teacher, and he was really... um, I did did write about him in an earlier draft of the book. I called him Mr Beanstalk, I believe. But um, he was he just didn't know what he was doing and we went into his lesson and he had no expectations really it didn't seem like he knew what was going on and we were messing around the whole lesson we're ripping down displays um one kid chucked a chair and then the the teacher ended up in a situation and this unlike I say to Darren this is why I'm a bit uh this is why I never had an aspiration of becoming a teacher myself because this history teacher as he was marching kids out of the uh, corridor and bear in mind you know he had started off as such a nice uh, wonderful and friendly teacher and we did love him like he's awesome but as he was marching kids out of this corridor you know we could see he was getting a bit stressed and he was starting to crack a little bit and this one lad um, refused to move for him and started mouthing off at him and it ended up this kid was in year eight it ended up that the kid jumped up he was quite a stocky lad he jumped up and he got him in a headlock and he put him into the girl's toilet and held the door shut. And, um, this essentially ended the guy's career because we never saw him again after that, because other members of staff had to be brought down. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been, uh, essentially imprisoned by a school kid a year eight, um, you know, as a fully grown man in a girl's bathroom. Um, and things like this were quite regular, um, you know if it snowed for instance teachers would be pelted with snowballs we'd be running into the graveyard which there's a graveyard next to our school um you know obviously that was the optimal place to put a graveyard i I don't know why they did that but um we would get a plank of wood and put it by the fence and climb over this fence and for some strange reason you know be drinking vodka in the graveyard or i don't even know why darren because you know why get a bottle of vodka and sit drinking in a graveyard in year eight I mean it's just ridiculous well go to KFC I mean that had a bit more there's a bit more logic to that one at least you can get some sustenance you know so you go to KFC get a zinger towel meal Miss Freshwater would be looking at you from the gates because this KFC is right over the road and she'd be like pointing and yelling at you and you just sit there eating your KFC you know laughing basically because you know what's she gonna do um, and those were the those were the kinds of things we did. I suppose there was a sort of um, arms race in it. Who could mm-hmm. do the naughtiest thing? And I remember a lot of pe- a lot of peers of mine would respect you for it. I think it's largely determined by peer group. For instance, I remember I got into a fight once and I came in with a black eye, and um, I, I got a lot of cred for that. You know, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, You know thought it was amazing that i had this black eye for instance yeah and it actually got me um people sort of respected you if you had done something bad that was that was it it was like an inverted i've got a friend who um he's at a gram. he was at a grammar school growing up and he tells me that the ethos there was a lot more about achievement and that the peer groups would tend to commend you for having done well in a test or having done well in some public speaking opportunity or something like that. But for me growing up, it was largely who hopped the fence, who called the teacher a, you know, are we allowed to swear?
0: Yeah, you can, go yeah. ahead.
1: It was like, who called the teacher a bell end, or who who said, who managed to be the cheekiest and get away with it? And to be perfectly honest with you do a lot of my friends did get expelled um, for saying things that were completely above and beyond. And even to this day, the school I work at, um, there is a graffiti symbol up above the tennis courts that was spray painted back in 2007 and, and could never completely be washed clean. And it says fix and it has a little spray paint can icon on it. And it was painted by my friend Taylor Blinko when I was growing up and he was expelled for that. So even today, even to this day, I have these reminders of um, when I was naughty growing up. But the, re- the rationale for it, I think it's something you do for fun, and it's quite heavily reinforced by the peer groups in certain schools.
0: It's interesting you talk about because it's there, because it's fun. You know, if you only want to jump off school and go to, go to KFC and get some food. And it also, the, the difference in narrative you shared there with your friend here at the grammar school, how influential peer groups are in the peer group culture at Colonial School. That's fascinating. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about, I think it's chapter two, is um, called Wasteman Teacher. So can you can you describe to us, what is a Wasteman Teacher? And then could you go on to talk about, you talk about, I think you said that in that chapter or the next chapter, about turning around your first year 10 class. So can you detail what a Wasteman Teacher is and then go on to, to share a story about how you turned around that first year 10 class? Well,
1: With the Wasteman Teacher thing, Um, I wanted to take the mick out of myself a little bit because I feel like a lot of teachers go through a phase of their career where it wouldn't be unreasonable to call them a bit of a waste man or waste uh, woman or whatever. So what the idea is that when you start out as a teacher, kids will routinely test your boundaries and often they'll lure you into traps because some of these kids are very well aware of, they're very, they're very, They're attuned to you if you're quite new and clumsy. So, for instance, when I took on my first classes in Chalmsley Wood, they'd often ask me things like, when's my birthday? Or um, I don't know why that's one of the questions they usually ask. They ask me, when's my birthday? Uh, One of them asked me if I was a YouTuber um, or if I played Minecraft or, you know, if I played Fortnite. They'd ask you these questions and... I want to make it clear, like, I'm not against having relationships or anything like that. I'm not against having a bit of um, banter with the kids. Far from far from it, you know. I love to have those kinds of personal jokes and warm relationships with the kids. The problem is, when you're inexperienced, you're taking on so much that you don't necessarily know what is appropriate to talk about and what isn't. And, and sometimes, if you get into the habits of having off-topic conversations with kids, that's going to result in you becoming... A Wasteman teacher because as a new member of staff you do have to establish yourself first through subject knowledge and academic rigor and I think that's part of why I'm quite pleased that things like direct instruction and explicit teaching are catching on now because they're making the profession more rigorous than it was back in the days of carousels and card sorts and all of that stuff um, but with Wasteman teacher that was a phase that I went through probably lasted about Probably lasted about two years or so. And even in my NQT, it was sort of partial. You know, I'd only partially managed to reverse that impression. Um, When it came to that year 10 class, that year 10 class I'd taken on as a trainee when they were in year nine. And they had certain, um, they had certain uh, impression of me from when I first started. Because when I first started, my mentor said to me, Don't worry about this class, you won't have to lift a finger. And so I took a literally and I just uh, put some quest- I, I put some task on the board, some group task and I thought, fair enough, I won't have to lift a finger, why not? Anyway, next thing I, next thing you know is in the book I'm, I'm essentially telling them that it's my birthday in the hope that they'll stop flipping bottles um, or throwing sweets at each other or yelling at this one lad who had autism who would read books in my lesson, which incredibly, I know it doesn't sound too disruptive yet that he'd read a book in my lesson yet, but every time if you ever got observed and this kid was reading a book and it wasn't history and um, you'd get in trouble for that. And a lot of the kids sort of knew that. And they would, they would like mock yell at him, like put away the book. So I was trying to teach. Meanwhile, those pens being smashed up and stink bombs going off. And um, that little chihuahua who I mentioned in the book um, has called me daddy in front of the whole class, which believe me, um, was probably one of the most um, disruptive things that ever happened to me because mm-hmm. just came out of nowhere and um they all thought it was hilarious and um it just resulted in me not being able to manage that class so in terms of turning that first year tenor class around there was a strategy that i used but as i said i've said it in my interview with david didal but i think that there are different strategies and different circumstances under which an intervention is going to work so if you start off the class with good rigor and broad subject knowledge that's targeted through questioning, if you're doing that, you probably won't need to turn a class around. But if you are a PGC or NQT, the likelihood is that there are classes that you've been on a slippery slope with. Um, and not just any slippery slope, you know, you're you're strapped into the toboggan and hurtling to the bottom of that uh, slope. So what you have to do is think to yourself, how can I put the brakes on? How can I stop this? Um, so, the thing I advocate is parental dialogue. I think that's extremely important. If you can find a way to speak to parents and cultivate that as a skill, you will always have that fail safe because no matter how far up people pushes you, if they do decide to push you, you'll feel more confident because you know that you can ring you know, Mr. Smith or, or Mrs. Candola or whoever. You know you can ring a parent and you'll have some kind of recourse. And that will make you more confident. And by establishing the parental dialogue as well, you know, it's a kind of pincer strategy so that you have home and school in collaboration, both ensuring academic outcomes. And, and it will just allow you to um, to other things will improve as a result of that. You'll probably find that uh, results in mock exams go up or, or homeworks are more likely to be complied with as a basis of the pupil knowing that you are in contact with home. So when it comes to turning that year 10, I won't lie, in that book, that year 10 class was never fully turned around because it was such an impression that I'd created. You know, the indelible the indelible stamp of my lowly origin with that class was just impossible to remove. But I turned it around intermittently with phone calls and um, strategies such as cultivating dialogue with home. Also seating plans, how to create the seating plans which I'll get on to later um, and also having very high expectations and creating tasks that ensured that I could keep pupils accountable where I had to but as I say the strategies for a very difficult and challenging class that you've lost respect of would be different from strategies you might have for a class you're taking on for mm-hmm. the first time.
0: Definitely and I think we might come back to that parent dialogue because there's some wonderful anecdotes in the book where you uh, kind of explain in, in good detail what you how you how you talk to parents on the phone, and I think that is, is incredibly useful for for teachers that may be a bit apprehensive for talking to um, parents at phone. But it's right that you say about the pincer strategy you can have with home and uh, school, because by and large most parents really do want the best for their their their, their child, so they will kind of help you in in making sure you get the best out of them so we're gonna dig a little bit into to behavior management and we've kind of already alluded to this idea but why should we um stop begging it and can you explain why the relationship comes through the learning
1: well i want to make it clear that um before i go on to begging it there's always a lot of debate about is it relationships first or is it content first and there's a lot of heated debates about Mm. this and i i think it is what you know, Ashman would call a false choice fallacy. I don't think that you're realistically going to go into a class and teach a topic as dryly as possible. If you do do that, you will be terrorized as well. If you did insist solely upon content and you were geography bot 3000, you'd find yourself, um, you'd find yourself, you know, walking out into the corridor and asking a cleaner if they could come in and help you or some, you know, you would do something undignified like that because things would spiral. But at the same time, I find that on PGC, my own personal experience with PGC was that I was told that it's all about relationships, that you have to cultivate a relationship and that the relationship comes first. And so I misguidedly attempted to do that. And I would say things to kids like, I would ask about their day and stuff like that. But the problem is a lot of kids who are finely attuned to how experienced the members of staff are, they associate that with you being a newbie. They associate that with you being some kind of greenhorn. If you ask them about their day and you engage in an off-topic conversation and you're quite young, they will think to themselves that you are that you don't know what you're doing. I, I'm, it's a shame that it happens. Mm-hmm. I'm not an advocate for, you know, be strict, be cold, whatever. But I do think that don't smile until Christmas is quite sound advice for inexperienced teachers. Because you have to have a certain level of experience to be able to know how to open up, when to open up and how far to do so. And at that point, I think once you do become more experienced, you can focus more upon the relationships, but relationships can come through learning too. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't
1: have to, I don't insult my subject. I don't denigrate my subject by thinking, wow, geography is so boring. No, one's going to want to talk about this. So let's talk about the football. Yeah. And obviously I don't even know anything about football. So what am I really realistically going to say to the kid? Like, Oh, did you see the big fixture? I don't know anything about football and that would be obvious too. So I'm not going to beg it by trying to cultivate a fraudulent relationship. I'm not a charlatan. You know, I want to just, and if I do have a personal joke, it'll often emerge out of learning. My, My jokes with my geographers are always on themes like, you know, being an eco warrior, for instance, I tell stories about, me they know that i'm not a massive they know that i'm sort of joking when i say it but i might say something like you know i've got a story in the book i talk about how i went to the supermarket and all the milk was in bags and i say to the kids you know it was like an incontinent dairy cow had been wandering up the aisle yeah and just let let loose because i don't know if you remember right back in 2009 2010 they went through a phase of trying to put milk in bags to um it was an environmentally it was more sustainable um and so i'll tell the kids about this and i'll say i was an eco warrior and i'll be getting all these bags of milk you should have seen me dry and they they just find it funny i don't know why and they would laugh at these these jokes They'd say sir the milk's in bags i would say yeah not carrier bags like little plastic bags look like pillows and the kids would be like whoa you know tell us tell us more and we have jokes um of that nature also i've got this story about um Climate change, for instance, there's this guy called Mark Van Risselberg, who's named the Potato Whisperer, and he created a potato that grows in seawater, and that's a method of adaptation. So, we always talk about the Potato Whisperer, and I'd say to the kids, you know, be more like the Potato Whisperer, guys. He's out there on the front line making these potatoes that can, you know, live in salt water. And then some kid will say something about, you know, a guy literally whispering to a potato, like, come on, you can grow if you it's just crazy little jokes like that but they are linked to my subject and mm. i am creating a relationship through that learning so that is i'm trying to sort of um explain as well as i can what it is i actually mean by that because you can see that i've taken a subject that is not often it's an often maligned subject for the entertainment value let's say to be as generous as i can to geography it's not something people get extraordinarily jazzed about is it but And the kids find that sort of stuff funny. And that's the, it's about, you know, for me, it's about little geography memes Um, and I'm not begging it because I'm not saying to them, come on guys, let's make this Facebook profile for King Henry VIII. I'm not saying like, you know, let's do some no likey, no likey, no likey, no lighty strategy or something like that. I'm not ripping off game shows or, or formatting my PowerPoints so that they look like, um, so it looked like some kind of itb thing that would be hosted by that um bradley walsh or whatever his name is but i've i'm just letting the subject speak for itself mm-hmm. i might tell the old joke and all the banter and relationships will come from that which i think is a it's a very useful strategy for younger teachers because it always keeps you tethered to that subject so you don't mm-hmm. veer too far from it and get yourself because you will probably end up getting yourself in trouble to be perfectly honest, because you know, as you gotta keep to the professional standards. And if you're having off topic conversations with kids, I actually think that's an area where a lot of uh, trainees and NQTs can get themselves in, in a bit of bother.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. It can be a slippery slope that kind of going off piece, but as you say, putting <laughs> the subject front and centre and using the narratives and analogies around the, the subject to to build strong relationships with young people. And we're gonna dig a little bit deeper into into some of the, the ideas you present around um teaching and pedagogy but let's stick with behavior a little bit and you talk about de-individuation I hope I've said that right um, in the book so can you explain what is de-individuation and then can you follow on to that by explaining how you became a one-man behavior unit?
1: Yeah of course Um, so the idea of de-individuation is that when people are in crowds they behave fundamentally different from when they're on their own and I know this from experience because you better believe when I was hanging out with all my little mates and our Lacoste tracksuits and our Lacoste caps and our Air Max trainers, you know, we felt like some little badmans. And And honest, honestly, we felt like nobody could do anything to us because, you know, we're, we're solid. We can't be messed with. You know, we've got little mopeds and stuff, for riding around. What are you going to do? Um, obviously, there were consequences to these behaviours, but when you're in a group like that, and especially when you're speaking to these people day in, day out, you can it's like a sort of gang mentality yeah it's like you sort of gang up on teachers and you can you can influence the class to be able to you know take on a teacher and the the funny thing is the most um there is obviously a quite large element of karmic retribution in mine having become a teacher because when i first went to schools i was on the flip side of this de-individuation where entire classes there is there is an element where kids their eyes sort of narrow at some time when they see that they can terrorize you it's actually quite alarming i remember this one class i had where this was a completely freak event as well we had two fire alarms and a year eight celebration assembly in one period lesson and it was period five on a friday so this was like the ultimate this was the (laughs) ultimate buzzer lesson yeah this was like you know, three 18 wheelers and a cargo vessel, you know, launched by a tsunami together to create a pile up of epic proportions. Um, Because the kids have to be marched down to the hall, marched back up, marched down to the fire fire escape, uh, and marched back up again, again, and again, again. And eventually it just wound up that kids were running around, running around the class, throwing pens, uh, tables were getting chucked. This one lad like I say, I can't name names, but he was he was throwing Starburst wrappers at me. It didn't hurt or anything. It was just, he was just doing it. T- it was just ridiculous. He was getting his little Starburst, eating them and chucking the wrappers at me. Um, and I was, I remember there were some school visitors coming around the school. Um, and I sort of hung, I, hang, I went out of the classroom and there was some quite senior member of staff walking, escorting these visitors around the school. And I was like, I was like, yo, can someone help me? I'm getting terrified <laughs> Right. And the, the look on the visitors' faces was absolutely priceless. <laughs> I could not do anything. These And it was like, um, it was one of those Hydra-headed problems because it felt mm-hmm. like, you know, you cut off one head, you deal with two more. i tell off one kid, I get a, you know, reaction from about five of them. And yeah, that is not a good place to be. So becoming a one-man behavior unit, is essentially about cultivating a reputation whereby and to be fair it's a lot more about the reputation than about the actual sanction mm-hmm. it's about the kid knowing but look if you do not do your work you'll be held accountable if you call somebody a spacker then you're going to be detained if you're going to you know flout the rules or or be abusive about a member of staff or be abusive because there's a lot of stuff you know we spoke at the beginning about you know racial abuse and abuse for sexuality there's the amount of kids i've seen who've been bullied pretty mercilessly for being lgbt um lgbtq it, you know i can't even count it on both hands. it's that many and i think we've got to ask ourselves the question right we've got schools where sure kids can self-regulate right but why is it that kids are routinely allowed to go to school. What would their parents think if they knew that some kids are at schools being called Blick or Freshie, right? Which is incredibly insulting terms, right? Racial terms, or that they were being abused for their sexuality. What do you think those parents would think? Do you think they'd shrug it off and say, oh, well, a kid said it, it's okay. Absolutely. No way.
0: Absolutely no way. not.
1: Yeah. And, and um, so becoming a one-man behavior unit, it's about several things. It's firstly about having that reputation. Secondly, about ensuring that you can keep up with any class you're dealing with, because if you are dealing with a class that enjoys to terrorise teachers, which do exist, especially if you're young as well, that is a real thing. If you're a younger teacher, they see you coming. The Little Red Book is a little strategy of my own devising, and I've, I've encouraged trainees to use it over the years, and it's a good one. Because what it is, it does two things. It's a book that's very conspicuous. You hold it up and the kids know what's going on. As the kids would say, they know Guan, right? They know you're going to be writing some names in it. And if you do write the name in it, you don't say anything because the worst thing you want to do is be roped into some judicial debate about whether so-and-so committed such-and-such on the 12th of Feb or whatever right you don't want these you don't want to go through the whole allegations and judicial procedures you're just a teacher you don't have the time for that you know some kids I almost think they want to hire a union rep to come in and like represent them for you giving them a five minute detention for not doing all their work um so the little red book is about you being able to keep accountable and the kids being well aware that they are being kept accountable as well
0: Certainly, and it goes on in that chapter as well to to talk about how you turned around the the thinking and behaviour around a people called Dalton McFlurry. Can I ask you to share the tale of Dalton McFlurry, please?
1: Dalton McFlurry's tale is, it's a tale that is unique to our climate at the moment because I was commenting to one member of staff, I was saying that back in the day, the kids you most needed to watch out for, the kids who are most going to cause disruption in class were, you know, the big six-foot lads built like brickies, you know, Lacoste caps, or as they have these days, the McDonald's haircut, which if you don't know it, <laughs> if you don't know the McDonald's haircut, it's like a perm that was that was uh, popularized by a rapper known as Little T, who used to have some very inspirational lyrics about breaking (laughs) people's moms backs and whatnot so very inspiring rapper there who popularized mcdonald's haircut but these days actually i find that the bad lads are actually some of the most manageable and sometimes the ones who are most unmanageable and difficult and disruptive can be pupils who do have a kind of status as in like an SEN diagnosis or EHCP plan or whatever these kids need those plans and teachers need to be made aware of SEN diagnoses and this is important because it does link into how pupils are going to be best accommodated in their lessons some of them are going to struggle with sensory overload for instance and that's one thing that's one of the contradictions I find so funny is that sometimes people who argue for unrestrained freedom within class to the point of you know pen smashing carnage and bags getting chucked out of windows people who they're not really arguing for that but they argue for an approach that would result in that they're the ones who are often saying you know we need to differentiate we need to you know check every moment and every second on the progress of the SEN kids which is important but the issue is, if you don't have a controlled classroom environment, I think that that's going to be far worse for the pupils who do have any kind of SEN status, especially when you consider sensory overload as being one of the, you know, one of the biggest um, that can have a very detrimental impact upon a lot of kids who have autism spectrum condition. So with Dalton McFlurry, this was a pupil who had a diagnosis. And what was what happened was he had all of these reports and He had reports of like his his levels of happiness, how much he'd been engaging, how he felt about certain teachers to the point where he almost became almost tyrannical with it. He could actually depose his own teachers. This is no joke. He could actually vote essentially which teachers he had and which teachers he didn't have. He had passes that enabled him to leave the room. He had passes that enabled him to leave five minutes early. He had toys that he would take, he would take his backpack, thunk it down on the desk and disgorge, disgorge, as I say in the book, it was like the inventory of Toys R Us that had been just deposited on his desk. Little twizzle sticks, little clicky cubes, little fidget spinners, you know, everything. It, you know, it, They would just spill onto the floor. He would actually become quite abusive to kids in the class. For instance, I didn't tell this story in the book, but one time with Dalton McFlurry, I was teaching about palm oil, which um, as all my geographers out there will know, It's obviously very devastating for the little orangutans living in the rainforest. So don't consume palm oil if you're trying to be eco-friendly. But um, I said to the kids, "Look, it's lunchtime now, so let's just get out your lunch and let's see who's got some palm oil, you know, in their lunch." As a sort of to show them how prevalent it was, because you know a lot of foods have it. Anyway, the kids got the lunches out, and uh, basic Dalton McFlurry starts yelling. Because the kid he sat next to has palm oil. And it's actually in a in a wrap. You know those little uh, sun-fried mm-hmm. chicken wraps you get? Yeah. I didn't even know they had palm oil in them. Anyway, but it did have it. He took this. He was running around the class saying, you know, that this was a... Be- he was talking about the orangutans and how, you know, you couldn't be... He was basically chastising people. And he was checking other people's lunches and, like, picking up the lunches and stuff and inspecting it for palm- And I was like, Dalton, you got to stop. You, know, you can't do this. You're manhandling people's lunches. Um, in the end, he chucked the wraps in the bin and it was, just, um, it was just quite an unbelievably disruptive situation. I had to pinch myself and say to myself, is this actually my job? I, is, is this actually happening right now? Um, obviously, he had to be sanctioned. The problem was Dalton doesn't do detentions. And Dalton doesn't do sanctions, right? And if you ring home, it's you don't understand my son's needs. On other occasions, Dalton had called uh, a teacher. He'd called one teacher fat. He'd called the teacher spotty and ugly. Um, he'd said lots of things to other teachers, and there was no, there was no kind of, um, there was no resolution to what he'd done. There were plenty of conversations. There were plenty of individuals who, who saw themselves as able to administer these conversations that would. Um, that would patch up the relationship between pupil and teacher. But that didn't happen. It was never successful. if it was, it was only a transient success. And with myself as well, you know, he'd, you know, I mean, even we saw a squirrel crawl into the bin one day, and uh, he was he shouted out what a dirty little fucker the squirrel was for climbing in a bin. I mean, it's just very difficult mm-hmm. to deal with that when it's in your class. With Dalton, my solution, was to hold him accountable for what he'd done. And the solution actually involved speaking to his parent, even though you're discouraged as a teacher from speaking to that parent because they have a EHCP plan. So I had to take upon myself to have these conversations and to say that, look, this isn't right. I know he has needs, I accommodate those needs, but I don't think your needs include chucking people's lunches in the bin because they have palm oil in them or, or, or calling someone spotty and ugly as a member of staff. Um, and so with Dalton the favours report as I talked about having him do washing up at home I know it, it it it's one of those things I just sort of came up with it on the fly but I'd say you know you have to fill out this little report that I just drew on the back of a piece of paper I said look you got to do the washing up two times a week pop the washing in the washing machine for your mum three times a week and take your brother to the park because he'd been uh, like attacking his little brother and stuff and his mum was getting worried So he did all those things. His mum signed the report and I'd speak to her every week. And she was, um, you know, she was lovely and she'd been struggling with him. But Mm -hmm. together, it links back to that pincer strategy, Darren, you know, together, not only did it improve the outcomes at school, but even at home, he stopped um, terrorising his little brother so much. So it was a job well done as far as I was concerned.
0: Yeah, that's a lovely way before we transition into talking about teaching pedagogy and classroom strategies It's a wonderful way to sur- summarize what we've spoken about already in terms of that pincer movement, That how important parent dialogue is. And I'd really encourage listeners to buy your book, to to read the anecdotes and, and what you say on the phone to parents and, and how you've dealt with some of that. And I love the idea of the, the little red book and also using your subject to to share the narrative and and build that relationship through the learning. So I think that's a a lot of really good messages for early career teachers and and even teachers that have been teaching for a while, like myself, just to remind them that, you know, phoning home and and kind of using that pincer strategy to support young people and achieve the best is really good. So we're now going to kind of, move on a little bit so we've kind of discussed you what we could probably your formative years in teaching so after these formative years you, you return to your old school uh, can you tell us about your year 11 class their crisis of confidence and the trick you uncovered with quizzing with a class that lacks confidence
1: yeah and I'm you were talking to me about this at the start as well or at the before we actually began recording and said that you would recommended this um, technique to one of your trainees i think and um i think it is a very simple strategy that is just very useful and it, it's one of those things that i talk about in the book how we need cognitive science we need research um, but the issue is if you're rigidly sticking to it 100 percent of the time it will only be a laboratory fiction because there are times where you have to market in teaching and often marketing can be quite irrational so with this year 11 class if I'd gone in and just done the retrieval and spacing well we know from surveys that kids don't actually feel as satisfied with spaced retrieval and interleaving it is more effective but they don't feel it is they feel that rereading the material or having mm. immediate feedback is like more effective don't they so what my strategy is it's very simple you have eight questions on a powerpoint the answers animating And what you do is you select pupils, you get all the kids to do the quiz first, then you start to select pupils to tell you the answer as you're animating in. What that does is it combines cold calling with the test so that every kid knows that that pressure is gonna be there to answer a question and that it could be anyone. So they better have done the quiz. And then with, um, with this class though, I found that the questioning and the cold calling, it was very tough. Every time I'd pick a pupil to answer, they would have this sort of flinching fearful because they didn't know they didn't know it was a new topic to them and they were just um, they were very conscious of what they didn't know and um, I felt like they felt geography was harder than it actually was and mm-hmm. um, if for instance I'll talk about in the book you know one people was talking about how they wouldn't have Wi-Fi in developing countries which is perfectly correct but because they lacked confidence they were they just didn't think that was a right answer they just plucked Wi-Fi out of you know thin air and and so they thought that it must be wrong so in order to remedy the lack of confidence i think a bit of marketing can come in handy and, and the way to do that is actually instant retrieval and you don't do it too often because as peps mcrae says the most beneficial time for someone to retrieve a memory is just before they forget it so this is one to use sparingly because we know how paradoxical feedback can be but what you can do is they do a quiz yeah i get the answers they green pen the answers then you say, right, close your books, hand out some paper, and they do the quiz again, right away, straight away. And I think it does link to securing a high success rate in the Rosenstein's, in Rosenstein's principles. Mm -hmm. I know other people have advocated a sort of 80% threshold for what constitutes uh, success, um, securing a high success rate. And I know a lot of the Benjamin Bloom and mastery stuff and things that Mark McCourt have written about sort of um, advocate this as well. But what, they'll have, what you will notice is that this will have the kids feeling more confident and they will have more faith in you. You do need to space out the retrieval intervals, but occasionally you can do this and it will secure a high level of confidence from your pupils.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly, and that doing it again and achieving it, it would make them feel better. It was a wonderful story, especially kind of the the anecdote of, of the question answering session when the student did say about Wi-Fi and, and you pressed that and you made them believe it was out. I, I could just feel like I was in the classroom with you reading that and, and see that that sequence. So thank you for that. Um, let's, let's put a little bit more around the lessons and, and the nuts and bolts of um, kind of your lesson structure and feedback. Can you show us what advice do you give on starters, plenaries, assessment and marking?
1: I think with starters, that one of the key pieces of advice you're always told is to have a hook or have some kind of engaging starter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just think the way you should see that is not necessarily as a gimmick. If you're going to have an engaging starter, often this is going to come through um, recapping on what they know already. I think if they know something already, then that's something they have a kind of investment in your lesson already. And if you can just tap into that, that's, that's a great starter. Plenty of ways to do it. I don't see the issue with doing a quiz as the start for every lesson, personally. It's recall, it's retrieval, it's simple. I don't see the issue with that. When it comes to plenaries, plenaries, however you pronounce it, um, like I say, I've never really done one. I just feel that's a kind of, a, I think it's a kind of fallacy. I think people like to have the idea of wrapping things up. But I've read a rather counterintuitive finding. I can't remember where I read it. But it suggested that when you're, if you don't wrap things up it can actually mean that your mind still considers it a kind of open problem and is more receptive to drawing in more information relative to that strategy Mm -hmm. so you can actually it's one of the i don't know where i read that before um but a plenary can actually have the opposite effect so that you're closing off the subject and they might stop to think about they might stop thinking about it and i think the other issue with plenaries is that you know, if you if you've got you know the main co- the main section of the lesson it's popping off and they're asking questions, um, why would you want to just why would you want to just cut that off? You know, with a with an untested task that might be you know, if the Reformation was a dessert, what would it be? You know, um, strawberry strawberry uh souffle or what? You know, it's it's not great for it's bake off, is it? Like having the kids think about pastries and tiramisu or whatever when they've been talking about the reformation I think it's a little bit gimmicky so I'll probably give plenaries a miss with assessment I think you know read Christodoulou read making good progress if you haven't already I think that's probably the seminal work on assessment I've referenced it in my book but I think when it comes to assessment you have to understand just how difficult it is and you have to ask yourself the question what is it about and you have to ask yourself the question, are you testing to assess or are you testing as a learning tool? So, you know, as Benedict Carey says, you know, achievement tests are learning devices. They should not just be considered as tools for measuring achievement. And I think we get a bit neurotic in the in the profession sometimes. We, we're trying to measure progress every two seconds. It's almost like... Um, Imagine you were on a date with someone yeah, and you kept saying to on the date, you were like, how's this going? Am I doing all right? <laughs> Do you, um, you know, imagine you're saying that. It's like, how's this date going? Um, You you wouldn't get a call back, would you? Let's be honest. Um, and I think it's similar with teaching. I think um, if you're constantly neurotically testing for how well you're doing, then there's not only is there an element of egotism in that, but I also think you're not, you're going to, that's an opportunity cost in what you could be, You know, making progress in terms of the learning or through planning. So, I think that with the message really of Chris Dulu's work is that assessment is fraught with so many difficulties. Mm -hmm. And I think linking it to Ashman, Ashman talks about breaking down the knowledge domain into very small chunks, almost to the extent that the chunks are so small that you could use mini whiteboards. Uh, I slate mini whiteboards in my book, but I do see what Ashman is saying that. If you've broken down the domain into chunks that can be asked answered with a pretty open and shut question that you could potentially use mini whiteboards and that would be a valid form of formative assessment i think the issue is that when a when an assessment is taken as kind of a lot of people for instance darren they still use formative assessment and they they think that that has to be recorded you see mm-hmm. because well i don't know why i don't think even dylan william knows why because dylan williams complained about it multiple times multiple occasions he said why are people recording what is supposed to be a formative assessment if i'm having a lesson with a driving instructor and i you know mess up on a roundabout he's not going to whip out his macbook and start recording oh you know you did useless on this roundabout let's go and do seven others and i can fill up the rest of the columns it's just uh (laughs) <laughs> it's a madness it's a madness yeah. <laughs> um it is it's just and i know where it comes from though because having worked in an inadequate school ofsted wise these people think they have to create a paper trail mm-hmm. and i actually got told i've been told um by teachers i've worked with i've said i said sam this is what i got told no joke yeah i was this was during a performance management that i got told sam Teaching is actually a very small part of the job, right? They said, I've got to create a paper trail. Um, what am I going to take to my meetings? And I just I just thought to myself, like, how could you disillusion somebody any more than you've mm-hmm. just <laughs> done? I care about what your day to me. meetings. No offense, yeah. And so I started thinking to myself, man, this assessment stuff, it's not about students first. It's not students first, it's about mortgages first, right? It's <laughs> about people wanting to pay their mortgages, right? So Assessment is supposed to be low stakes and frequent, and it's a learning device. It isn't about accountability. If it is about accountability, change schools. That's my advice. Um, And marking, we know that marking's a problem. If you've written an essay, there's an infinite amount of different things you could comment on, Mm -hmm. but you want to target what you're looking for. If you're trying to mark a class, you're going to be, let's say that, you know, let's say pupil A Let's say Johnny has written an essay and he's made lots of spelling errors, lots of grammatical errors. Otherwise, the essay is great. So he's lost marks on back. And then you say like, I don't know, Carol. And that's not really a kid's name these days. Is <laughs> De- Destiny. Destiny has written an essay and it's got um, in her essay. She just simply hasn't understood the topic and so made a lot of errors in terms of the chronology and whatnot. Mm -hmm. you're marking all those assessments not only do you have 30 assessments to mark rigorously and you have to do so rigorously because at the end of the day as well if you don't if you only mark one or two things on that essay they might conclude that everything else they did was correct in which case the feedback could be worse but you're also going to be task switching as well which is really inefficient you're going to be going from grammatical errors on one paper Mm -hmm. through to you know chronological errors if it's a history paper on another and you're you're asking yourself, what do I actually feed back on? And even with the marking, you know, is the does the kid have a textbook at home? Are they going to be correcting at home? Are they correcting it in class? Do they have the content to be able to address that problem in class? Again, linking to Ashman again, because I've read his book recently. Um, he says, why not just teach it properly in the first place? And Mark McCourt says the same thing. Teach mm-hmm. it correctly in the first place then assess that very small item of knowledge that you're attempting to instill. That links to Rose and Shine too, teaching in small steps, introducing new material in, in uh, small mm-hmm.
0: steps. It certainly does. And some great analogies in there. <laughs> Just pictures. I'm going back to my mind and all the dates that I've had in, in the past. And did I, did I sit there going, is this going well? Is it? Great <laughs> <Brilliant laughs> analogy. So thank you for that. And, and you're right what you say about the... The assessment, and I'm sure many teachers can echo kind of the ideas behind what one of your colleagues said about the paper trail. And sometimes it's, it's madness some of the, the data that we produce for what reason it's not for the students' progress reason, and they never see the data or the spreadsheets. But it's an interesting one. Hey, can I ask you then about homework and um, should we bother with homework?
1: I do think we should bother with homework. I think we need to completely reevaluate the way that we do homework. Um, I'd like to, you know, credit where I got it. I got it from Tom Sherrington's Learning Rainforest, which is a really good book if you've not read it. It's very mm-hmm. comprehensive and it covers lots of topics and gives lots of useful strategies. But in um, the Learning Rainforest, Sherrington talks about Hattie's meta-analysis and how, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's something like it's 0.7 effect size for secondary homeworks, but it's actually less if you include primary that's not useful for homeworks. got a much smaller effect size for primary it's actually quite effective for secondary but he also talks about which would be the best homeworks to use and I know that Ashman agrees with Sherrington and says that it's largely rote slash retrieval based homeworks that are going to see the best outcome and that's largely because if the teacher isn't supervising a very complex piece of work then the pupil is likely to get it wrong and that there would be errors encoded through that so a retrieval is something that a pupil can do quite simply at home. It's only almost to sort of warm the engine in a sense. Yeah. Just to keep them ticking over and thinking about that topic. It's almost, it doesn't have to be an hour long. It doesn't have to be five hours of homework a week. Or I remember when I was a kid as well, how demotivating that is. Teachers saying to me, Oh, cause I, 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 I never did a single piece of homework in school ever Darren, because I was just too, I was too prestige as the kids might say these days, yeah, I didn't do homework. I didn't do detentions and that. But um, I remember being told, oh, there's 8 you're going to have to spend eight hours a week doing your homework. So I thought, eight hours? I haven't done a homework since year one when Miss Malloy confiscated my Batman watch, right? I haven't done a homework since year one. So I, I sort of construed that as me being um, irrevocably behind in all topics. But we know... That more is not necessarily better and that less is more in some sense. So mm. a, sh- a little retrieval homework, uh, an example I give in the book is one I did with my geographers back in year 10. I gave them a uh, five facts. I said, memorize them, come back and I'll test you. And I had a little desk at the front. I said, this is the homework desk. You come to the front, you write the facts without looking, and then you go back to your own desk. And that was a good little strategy because it was quite fun. You know, the kids like the idea of going up to the homework desk and whatnot, and they'd do the little recall, and then they'd go back. Um, and obviously, they couldn't copy off of each other or anything. It was very – that was just one of the many ways you can do it. Do it how you like. Um, I was talking about this thing called the Knowledge League, like one of my old bosses come up with, and that was quite good because it got the kids um, – they would try and remember the facts and it would. they would get a score. The only issue I'd say with stuff like that is, you know, when you record the score, it can become – high stakes for some kids um so yeah should we bother with homework yeah but there's nothing wrong with a little 10 to 15 minute job there doesn't have to be some you know penitential act that people you know like self-flagellating or something you know it's not it's not um it shouldn't be a punishment right it should just help them think about the topic when they're not in school and that's 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 my view really and i I think it's a view of quite a lot of authorities these Mm.
0: days Certainly, and linking back to the the quizzing and the the space retrieval, I like that idea of just a thing that thing. And I've thoroughly enjoyed what they reading that bit about the, the facts and see is, you know, you can see the kids taking great pride in being able to walk up and write the facts and hand you hand you the, the slip of paper because they remember it. And it it's not really an onerous, That's not really an onerous homework. And like you said, when you were referencing Ashman and Sherrington, you don't want the kids going home and doing this wild bit of homework that their parents can't help with and they've got to stress themselves out about it. If you have small kind of little homeworks that they can do quite quickly and they, while they're waiting for the dinner to, come, dinner to come down, they're just doing some ones and that's it done and they can get on with their evening, it's, it's a great way to think about it. Um, next up, uh, let's chat about seating plans. I, I really enjoyed this, this chapter and this idea. So can you share with us, what is the 100 flowers technique?
1: obviously it's a sort of facetious like name for it um basically with a seat implant i was always being told to do mixed ability seat implant or i'll be told to do a boy girl seat implant or something and i would have people coming into my room and saying sam the seat implant's not mixed ability we've got to have it mixed ability i'll be thinking i'll be thinking to myself why the class is going perfectly why what's the reason for that um and I, don't, I think a lot of the time, you know, there's some school wide policy on seating plans and, you know, school leaders, they want to ensure uniformity. But for me, it depends on the class. And I've found a technique that works really well. And I've used it with I don't use it with every class, to be honest, I usually do use it for tougher classes, but you can use it with any class. It's it's a good one. Before I start to explain it, it's important to understand that self-regulation is not really achievable for... It's not something you can just expect all kids to do. As I said in the beginning, you know, messing around is fun. Messing around is a good laugh. You know, eating crisps and stuff in lesson or throwing sweets at people. You know, that for me, when I was growing up, that was a spice of life, right? You know, messing around, take out your Game Boy, play a bit of Mario Kart, why not? Right, that was just the way to... That was just fun. So self-regulation is not necessarily something we can expect of pupils. You know, try reading Nick Rose and David Didal for more on that, um, what every teacher needs to know about psychology. Um, so what you need to do is you need you do need to separate the pupils from their friends because talking to friends is biologically primary mm-hmm. um, knowledge. They call it biologically primary activity. It's something we're programmed to do. We all want to do it, you know, have a chinwag with our mates. Like Everyone wants to do that but biologically secondary is stuff that we're not necessarily adapted to do naturally so for instance you know i would never if there was no incentive to study maths i would never look at a maths book i just wouldn't bother you know i'd play mario kart why not that's mm-hmm. way more fun you know hit some turtle shells at people why not but um with um with biologically secondary stuff it involves them delaying their gratification which relates to the whole walter michelle and the the cupcakes or the muffin you know the kid have you heard of marshmallows marshmallows that's it that's the one um so yeah the kid has to the study that I'm referring to is that the uh, it's a self-gratification self delay of gratification test where they found they studied small children and they found that better life outcomes were associated with kids who could refrain from eating the marshmallow straight away and the ones who refrained from eating the Marshmallow straight away they got two like 10 minutes later or something or 15 minutes later so you've got to allow kids to delay their gratification because talking about mario kart as fulfilling and wonderful a game as it is right that's not as good as getting a maths gcse so the hundred flowers technique involves saying to the kids look stand behind the chair you want to sit at." And the reason you say stand behind the chair is because you don't want them getting comfortable where they're sat right you don't want them sitting down straight away they stand behind the chair the funniest thing is they immediate it was every time down here they immediately mm-hmm. go to the mates and they got a big beaming smile on their face like here we go it's going to be a good one um and then you set. and then you know where they want to sit you know where they're going to be most disruptive because you know where they're sitting to the friend that they're most going to be off task with and at that point you just judiciously move them until the point where they can sit down and you can be assured that there's not going to be off-topic conversation or at least that it's manageable they might be the odd kid you think they're sensible they're friends they can work together it's fine the point is you just keep them stood behind the chairs and move them until such a time as you can feel confident that this is the optimal arrangement and at that point you say sit down so the hundred flowers technique it works because it shows you once you say stand behind the chair you want to sit at you can see what would probably be the worst seating plan arrangement mm-hmm. and then you can move from that base level to create a more optimal seating plan for learning
0: certainly it's exactly there the optimal seating plan for learning and i love the i love that idea when i when i heard that and it's certainly one that i'm going to take on board myself so thank you so much for that now, i'd like to talk about but planning we've explored so much today it's it's, it's so um so much, so so, so much we're we're coming through, and there's so much gold within the book. It, it, it really is fantastic. So we're going to talk about planning. Uh, why does over planning inevitably fail?
1: I think it comes to it comes down to what we mean by planning. So I've been talking to colleagues recently, and I've been saying that I think planning is worst when it involves external resources. Because if you're inputting all of your energy into something you have to print out, that is not something that's within you. That's not something intrinsic to your teaching ability. And it's something that you have to be hooked up to a printer to be able to do. When I talk about planning failing as well, I think if you plan something too much, you're gonna actually, Mm -hmm. you're actually gonna create a mindset where you're feeling quite neurotic about what you're gonna do. You're worrying as well as planning, you're obsessing. And that means that if your plan is too rigid, Let's say, for instance, like little proformas you get, for instance. You might write out a pro forma. We all know from like lesson obs back as PGCE, you got a little pro forma. You mm-hmm. jot out what I'll do at five minutes, what I'll do at 10 minutes, what I'll do at 12.5 minutes, right? Every second accounted for, right? Because it's so they can't be losing learning, you know. Um, the thing is though, let's say that the if you're an adaptive teacher, you might a misconception might arise in the course of instruction, it might be a more fruitful avenue for you to address that. So you shouldn't be sticking to those rigid intervals. You should be, um, you should be allowing that lesson to organically grow in that direction. So for instance, if I was teaching, I'll give an example. Like If I were teaching um, how Hitler came to power, for instance, that's quite a tough topic. It uh, links to the depression. But I might notice that the pupils are confusing the Great Depression with the hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. of 1923 so i might say right the hyperinflation was where the money spiraled out of control and that you had to weigh it at the shops to be able to buy something and people were burning it for fuel because they didn't have any because it was actually cheaper than purchasing wood as the great depression was an economic it was largely to do with the collapse of a bubble um in america that led to the withdrawal of loans from weimar and i would go through that i would be using that lesson at that point because I. I am knowledgeable enough to be able to do that so when it comes to planning I would say why not plan for every eventuality and just make sure that you know the topic inside out round and round every which way possible and um, I know you said you're a fan of my flashcards uh Darren and to be fair I am as well because as a subject as a non-subject specialist look I'll tell you the truth right when I became a geography teacher I have no qualifications in geography I'm not even going to lie I didn't have a geography GCSE I dropped the A level and um some someone just came up to me one day and says hey Sam do you want to teach geography I said sure <laughs> and so I became a geography teacher and I didn't know anything about geography like I say in the book you know I thought some uh, some kid told me she'd been to Torquay over the weekend I thought she'd been to Spain and she says <laughs> She says, no, sir, Talk you're thinking of Turkey, that's in Spain. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so essentially, uh, I knew no geography. So I used uh, flashcards to expedite the acquisition of subject knowledge. And that helped me immensely. And I think if you can do that, that is a form of planning. doesn't necessarily have to take place in the hours, you know, those last few coffee sips before an observation you can do it whenever you want but it'll serve you forever and the best thing is if you can get that knowledge into your head it's going to iteratively become stronger every time you retrieve it and you're just gonna it may seem like it's a lot of work to commit something to to commit a subject to memory but actually the dividends make it well right. worth it because you you can look at we all know them as teachers down it sit around the staff room you know slouching on a desk you know not Not worrying, looking very insouciant and drinking a coffee like nothing's, you know, like nothing's, there's no pressure on them. That's because they know what they know what they've got to do and they can go in with a board pen and their life is almost like entirely stress free. So, yeah, I think with planning, plan in such a way that it's sustainable. You're not overly reliant on resources and so that you know the subject well enough to be able to adapt mid instruction.
0: I like that and, and, I, and I absolutely love the, the idea of flashcards to develop your own knowledge and it's something that all teachers can do to make sure that they're fully confident in your own knowledge because you can then adapt your teaching so much better and, and use stories and analogies so much better when it's in your memory and I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed when you, and with David Dydow, you even showed your <laughs> flashcards. To, yeah, so I've got my flashcards here, it was, it was, great. And that like, great, he was great. He
1: was like, well, he, he goes, Well, um, I, I haven't used those myself. (laughs) The thing is though, a lot of teachers, they find the idea of doing that. They find that sort of, um, they just wouldn't do that because I think when we become teachers, Darren, we assume, Mm -hmm. we we almost assume to ourselves we're above revising like a little, you know, we're not a kid. Why revise? I think there's a bit of a, I think that that's a bit complacent, you Mm -hmm. know, um, you know, if you if you learn about it by writing, doing flashcards, whatever. But I've got no qualms about sitting down like some little six for me yeah? and just, uh, you know, being a little try hard and doing my flashcards like whatever. It works. It does mm-hmm. the job. So whatever you can do to um, strengthen your subject knowledge, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If it works for the kids, retrieval practice is going to work for the professional as well. So why not?
0: Certainly, there's always going to be areas of your of your subject that you maybe didn't study at university or so, and that it's well worth knowing yeah. because, as you say, the, what you can do with it when you're in the classroom and where you can go with it is great. And you spoke a little bit about resources there. Can you tell me a little bit about your thinking around using textbooks?
1: So I think textbooks solve a lot of the issues that we currently have um, in schools. I think with schools currently, every time I open Microsoft Teams or the shared area, I swiftly feel myself having a migraine because there's such and such a document in drive c and you know and on this file and the you know staff resources you've got document x so here's you know someone will tell me they're like sam oh i've got a lesson for you to do and i'll be like oh good nice one they said yeah it's on the share drive it's, oh you've only got to print out like 10 card sorts and a carousel task like no brother i mean i can't go bankrupting myself at the printer so textbooks are a neat and handy little way around that and and i think um i think it's good for the kids too i think they're seeing the content in a standardized way i think that if you're if you're sharing a class with another teacher they might teach an entirely different way to you but that seeing that same information on the same spread is going to give that kid it's going to anchor them to that topic so it might give them more continuity if the kids own or possess the textbooks or revision guides, that's going to enable them to become independent. And I did say in my interview with Dai Dao was saying the same. I was saying, you know, it's quite funny how people who argue for kids to study independently are often the same ones who want to take away textbooks that enable kids to study Mm -hmm. independently, because that was what I did when I went from five C's to three A stars and two A's. Um, And like I say in the book, I'm not a high attainer. That's not, that's not some kind of boast. I worked hours, hours for that, you know, to go from five C's to three A's and two A's and I used textbooks because I could look at the contents page and I knew the whole course. That was it. I didn't need a knowledge organizer. I didn't need a skills organizer. I didn't need somebody sequencing the curriculum and putting it into my head. I did it all myself. Um, and so for me, the textbook was a real source of, um, solace because as i say in the book you know my family had lost everything i needed a way to be assured of making progress and having that textbook page i mean i've said it to people before i've heard teachers have said to me sam well they don't say this exactly but they say sam you know we've got to sequence the curriculum can you sequence the curriculum for this can you can we create the curriculum for this and go away and create a scheme of work And, and i just said to them I just put take out the textbook triumphantly and say, "I've got your scheme of work right here." And turn to the contents page. Obviously, it's met with a it's not met with the warmest reception, um, <laughs> because you know, teaching is a paper trail game, Darren. So you know, it's not you know. And I, and I will say one thing before I move on. But there's something I didn't talk about in the book that um, I I do think there's an incentive on leaders to produce these documents. You see. Um, I think it's one of those, I think it's a sort of good heart's law type thing where, you know, often teachers will be credited and evaluated on the basis of what departmental documents they are producing. And that those documents will become a kind of currency, Um, even though just as with the hyperinflation, the more of them there are, the less value they have. And I think with, um, I think a lot of the reason that certain professionals eschew textbooks is because they want to create their own documents that they can have credit for and so they don't like the idea of using a textbook because they see I think a lot of teachers see it as cheating as well I think they either see it as cheating like if that textbook teacher uses a textbook they obviously have some kind of weak subject knowledge even when Dylan William has you know noted all many kinds of benefits from textbooks including for early years teach for early um, career teachers who have weaker subject knowledge and even in terms of being superior to digital resources in terms of the retention of knowledge I think there's that too Um, and just in terms of you know you talk about knowledge organizers well they do organize the knowledge so I think textbooks are one of those things they become a weird like they become a kind of token of a political divide you know you'll have conservative educationalists arguing that textbooks are the be-all and end-all and you have the more progressive saying that textbooks are, you know, akin to the rehabilitation of the dunce's cap and the cane. I mean, we need to be able to like, we still use desks and chairs, don't we? It's like, mm-hmm. I feel like with the way it is with some people, they feel like, because a lot of things, because education in Victorian times, um, or even, you know, during George Orwell has a story about um, his, his upbringing at a, a, a school, a private school growing up. Um, and there's horror stories about kids being hit with canes because they couldn't do the Latin conjugation, you know, mm-hmm. in, enough, in quick enough, in record time. But that, that's not the product of textbooks. I think we need to be able to separate that, there, yes, there were associations with Victorian teaching methods and rote learning similarly, but textbooks were not responsible for that. I think there were many, many other political factors that meant Victorian education system was um, dysfunctional. And it wasn't to do with textbooks. So I think we've thrown away the baby with the bathwater there. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Certainly. And it's interesting how many kind of higher performing nations um that we that we look to a lot, how often they use top quality textbooks and in, in that. Tim
1: Oates Tim Oates talks about that. Mm-hmm.
0: He certainly <laughs> does, and it's interesting and it's uh, I've not long finished reading Lucy Crean's Cleverland and Oh
1: yeah, yeah. A lot yeah, of that. Cool.
0: A lot of that talks about, you know, the classroom and, and textbook instruction. So it is, is an interesting one. So um, let's move on to, to questioning. You give some really wonderful examples. Again, I feel like I was in your classroom and experiencing it and learning so much from it on teacher-led questioning. Why is teacher-led questioning optimal? I think that
1: part of teacher-led, you know, in terms of direct instruction, explicit teaching, are objective is to lower the cognitive strain on pupils and again you know that that is not my idea that's ashman again you know he's coming up a lot but i gotta give credit where it's <laughs> you i don't want to like steal ideas um so yeah you're trying to reduce the cognitive strain on pupils if you're trying to if you're trying to bring them into a new domain where they don't have any knowledge then they're going to swiftly be overloaded and we know from daniel Willingham, you know his excellent book why don't students like school we know that that is, one, that is actually a barrier. And that's why problem-solving tasks often result in very little retention of knowledge. And it's very interesting, I think, how sometimes, you know, trainees are introduced to that Bloom's pyramid and they've given the interpretation of a, Bloom's taxonomy, sorry. They're given the interpretation that, you know, the higher order skills are actually the most difficult, whereas I always found remembering to be the most difficult. I think a lot of people feel the same way. Um, So, I think the teacher led question is I have a great little technique that I use, a couple of techniques. I think it's so versatile. If you're really enthused about the subject too, you can bounce those questions like you would believe. And it actually doesn't require too much planning, providing you know the subject well enough. And I got this class I teach at the minute, and they were saying to my colleague that they remember, they said they don't know why, but they remember so much from my lessons, as in, you know, me, they're saying that they know so much from Mr. Elliot's lessons. and I know why they do that. It's because I might have a set of 20 or 30 questions that I bounce around in a circle, right? And I just keep, and the, those questions will come back around. So for instance, if I was teaching Weimar Germany, I've got a couple of set questions that I ask, like how many men was the German army limited to? Or how often was the chancellor elected? How often was the president elected? They're just silly little questions, right? Answers: to 100,000, four years and eight years or something like that, right? And I'll just keep asking the questions again and again and again. And each kid will end up getting a different question. And sometimes they'll answer the question twice. And I don't necessarily keep track. I don't necessarily say, oh, pupil A answered question B on uh, on minute 17 of my lesson. I just sort of, in a low stakes manner, bounce the questions around. And I'm very keen on getting, um, if they don't know how to pronounce something, for instance, if they say, if they don't pronounce Versailles correctly, or if they don't pronounce one of the key terms correctly, I'll have them say it back to me, you know, I'll have them t- say that word back to me so that I'm certain that they understand it. So I had this one kid, he was saying Karl Leibniz and Rosa Luxemburg like three times, four times, he ended up getting to like 10 times he'd repeat it, but he knew it. He knew, he knew the names of those two key figures in um, Weimar German history. And I just bounce those questions around again and again and again, and I, re- I revisit them again and again and again, and I think you shouldn't be averse to just spinning off a whole lesson on the basis of teacher-led questioning. You can do that. There is nothing wrong with doing that. Um, the reason I think it's good is because it's very low rent. You don't have to print anything for that it's going to enhance your own subject knowledge because you have to think on the spot a lot. You have to improvise. You have to be spontaneous. You've taken away all the crutches. When you're doing teacher-led questioning like that, that's it. That's you out there on the bicycle, right? Dinging the, you know, you're dinging the belt and your stabilizers are gone and you're riding, you're pedaling your little bike, right? And that's it. No stabilizers, no support. You will improve as a teacher by putting yourself out into that, that uncertain territory of a, teacher-led questioning it's very fast-paced it can be really rapid it can be really versatile you can change it up you can pop in a quiz you can have and i think it links back to my whole don't be too rigid with your planning. you don't have to sit there and formulate a timetable for every you know you don't have to have every stop on the learning itinerary mapped out right you can afford to use spontaneity that is good. You know, we don't know every single thing about teaching. There is no way to scientifically stipulate every single thing that has to go into it. If you know enough about your subject, you fire enough questions, you link them into the stories as well. The stories I was telling you about, um, for instance, if I'm teaching geography, I'll talk about the potato whisperer, or I'll talk about the milk being in bags in the supermarket, or, or whatever. I have all these little strategies for trying to secure some kind of engagement and they link in the narratives and the stories link in with the questioning. And, and I think that is very fertile area mm-hmm. for teachers to tap into because as they do that more and more and more, they're going to progress and grow. Although it is very difficult initially.
0: Definitely. I like the kind of the idea of, of starting with the stabilizers and taking them off. And it links back to what we said about subject knowledge and your use of flashcards because you're committing so much of the content of the courses to memory, you're able to then bounce so many questions off the off the students and, and design quizzes on the hoof that you wouldn't be able to do if you just didn't have that body of knowledge. So it shows how important it is that we do have a deep subject knowledge so that we can do that. And linking back, way back to the start, when we we're talking about behaviour and putting the, the, the subject Uh, building relationships to the learning i mean the the deeper your knowledge is the the better that is a couple more questions before we move on to the the quickfire and and um next one is 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 there a cover classes? not many people write about cover classes which i found this one really really interesting how do we take on a cover class and when
1: i think the key is to well there's a couple of ways to do it I think if you're going into an area that's completely out of your comfort zone, it's always good to have a little bit of a swat up on the topic before actually setting foot in the class. But the key thing is to try, and again, it comes back to marketing. The reason I'll talk about it is because you are going to, once you're, I think you can get them after the first term of your NQT. I'm pretty sure that after the winter term of NQT in England, that you can start hmm. getting covers so they pop up on your timetable little yellow block on sims the yellow block of doom and you're going to go into that cover and potentially you know there's going to be some bottle flipping and fidget spinners flying through <laughs> the air if you're not careful so um i think the key is as i say in the book i make a joke in the book i, I saying if i was teaching pe for instance i might say I'm the regional boxing champion, but I won't tell the kids that the region was my back was my uh, back garden with three of my friends. Um, so something like that, like a little bluff in a sense, you know?
0: Mm.
1: If I were teaching a maths lessons, for instance, I'll go into a lesson and I'll say, you know what? You know, I'm an excellent mathematician. I'm brilliant. You know, the maths that I know is of such a high level. And I'll say that sort of thing to the kids and they find it quite funny. If I was teaching a maths lesson, I'd go in and I'd say, you know, I've made so many discoveries in maths, you wouldn't believe the stuff I know about fractions, multiplication, division. Obviously, it's it's just nonsense, isn't it? But I'm talking <laughs> like, so I'm just talking in that sort of um, manner. I'm trying to secure engagement and largely, providing the teacher has left some kind of activity, I would set up a way for that activity to take up time. You have to remember with a cover class, it isn't the same as teaching properly. It isn't the same as teaching with integrity. You're essentially teaching in a manner that you don't want to be terrorised. You don't want incidents happening. You don't want kids getting punched in the face or something. Like you don't want kids getting, you don't want someone's Fanta to miraculously explode and, you know, douse somebody in sticky orange fluid, right? You don't want a kid drinking Copperberg's mixed fruit at the back of your class, which is something that happened at one of our old schools, Um little tin of copperberg's mixed fruit found at the back of a lesson after a cover i mean what's that about um so you have to be in such you have to be able to behave in such a manner that you can control the classroom i think a lot of it has to do with how you present yourself kids can see the moment you're not confident to do with your posture if you Mm -hmm. break eye contact obviously don't stare at people either you have to be careful you know when i say when i give some kind of advice don't take it too literally like if i say don't break eye contact obviously if you're trying to stare a kid out that's an issue as well but don't flinch from a kid who's looking at you make sure that you're giving strong eye contact and you're talking directly to everybody you're teaching because you're going to signal to them the moment you're feeling like some kind of fraud because you're teaching a maths lesson and you only got a c grade gcse um then you might start to panic and that'll be very obvious and at that point you're going to get disruptions at that point you're hurriedly scrolling through youtube for something on transformations and how to do that or you're just going to end up with a behavior incidents that you don't want and you might get some of those kids in a future class and they might think of you from the cover class and it might you know might impair your reputation somewhat so when it comes to taking on a cover class and win act like you know what you're talking about signal with body language that you are incredibly confident and try and ensure that you have tasks drag out. And the one one thing I do say with the um, tasks as well, there is, you will find that the four bullet points task I talk about in the book works for pretty much everything. Yeah, that, that is a good one for trainees and NQTs. Feel that you have the permission, right? I'm giving you the permission now, if you're listening, yeah, to do that. Just stick four bullet points on the board and say, rank and explain in order of importance, the following. And then you have four bullet points. So in the book, I talk about. I say, for instance, if I was teaching a hair and beauty lesson, obviously I know very little about <laughs> hair and beauty. I'm not her you know, I'm not one of those um, people. But if I were teaching a lesson like that, I might say rank and explain the following bullet points, and then I might have acrylic hair, nail extensions, um, other stuff. Right? I might have them rank like that: mascara, foundation. I'd say rank and explain in order of importance. And I talk a bit, I try and question them, see what they know. They might tell me about the wonders of a, a particular brand of foundation. I might try to you know, suppress my excitement and uh, keep going. And then once I've done lots of questioning and they've done most of the heavy lifting for me, I would say, right, now I want you to write an evaluative paragraph on the most important hair and beauty um, techniques that we have. And then the best thing about that task is, if they state if they put it in order they'll say which was the best and why they say i picked acrylic nails because you know you, you get in a cat fight you can scrap someone i don't know Then they might say i'll pick to the bottom that um foundation is the least important because if it's raining you look like um you know you're dissolving or something but like wicked witch of the west or something after a bucket of water so those the, then you can keep saying to them well explain what you said such-and-such such was more important than the other one. Well, why did you think this one was only second most important? Why did you think this one was only third most important? It's just a very versatile, very simple, very low-rent strategy. Rank and explain, four bullet points. Give it a go if you're ever wanting a quick lesson to fire out and you've got nothing planned, because it does invariably give you uh, something to lean on.
0: you something to lean on and so much flexibility. Thanks for explaining that, and I love how you covered – cover lessons because it's something that it's not in a lot of books and last question before we close off this interview section and move to the quick out I, I love this bit in the last bit of uh, team teacher I, I just i just love that um and you're right um teaching is my sport and I, that just resonated with me so much sam what do you mean by that well
1: i think what it came down to was well i'll be honest with you right so i had a um, back in uh, feb my dad got ill and i started thinking a little bit about like mortality and what's going to happen to us you know at the end of our lives and things like that and, you know i got a bit thinking about my purpose and whatnot and i was thinking you know i do teaching is this just a job or what you know and then i um i remember watching that uh, michael jordan what was it called there was a michael jordan documentary it was about the did you see it at all? Mm, the Chicago
0: Bulls, the dance. Yeah, the last dance,
1: dance. That was it. The last dance. I watched the last dance, and I got addicted to that. And obviously, Michael Jordan is just some—he's just some badass, you know. He just takes over the whole team. He just—he's shooting hoops. He's slam dunking. No one could stop him. He's on fire. And I just thought to myself, you know, this this notion of my own, this notion of mortality, and also, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, that wasn't his job. That wasn't a nine to five. He didn't get up in the morning and say you know, I've got to play basketball for an hour and then do a spreadsheet about it. He, he went in and he smashed it and then he, you know, won the, the championship thing like six times or something, didn't he? So I guess I thought sometimes when I'm in the class and I know that other trainees and PGCs will be thinking this too, you know, you get that, that energy, you know, mm-hmm. that energy, the kids are giving you energy and they're answering questions and they're getting confident and then you fire out another question. And then the class might lull for a second you might think oh hang on am i going to lose this or some disruptive lad might come in i remember this one kid um this on that article i wrote for the spectator um this kid i was talking about how he like lifted a lighter and started sparking it yeah in the middle of the lesson and obviously it was incredibly disruptive but it was one of those things that suddenly there are so many variables that can go on in the midst of the lesson and you're constantly problem solving aren't you it's like um i know that that joe rogan he describes mixed martial arts as high level problem solving high stakes problem solving because if you get something wrong you know you're gonna get an uppercut and you know be on your back you know so with teaching i feel like it's the same sort of thing it's that high level kind of you have to respond to any issues or matters as they're arising you have to be like over a long period of time as well trying to sustain their level of knowledge And you're trying to just make it you're trying to secure some level of entertainment. It's one of those things. I know it's very polarizing, the debates on engagement and I stick to the Tom Bennett quotes that engagement is a process, not an outcome. Um, It's an outcome, not a process, sorry. You're not supposed to use engagement to try and trick kids into liking geography. Heaven knows it didn't work for me growing up. Okay, I used to climb out the class window and go running around right? because I didn't like geography and no amount of card sorts was going to change that but um teaching as a sport the idea for me this was my sort of this was my sort of pinnacle that you could reach um, and it was this if you can go into a lesson with just a board pen and smash that lesson out of the park and if someone comes to observe you doing that they're going to come in thinking how does this person how is this person doing this they haven't got any they haven't got any card sorts they haven't got any printed uh, Facebook profiles of Joseph Stalin or anything. Like, how are they doing this? How is this engaging? And well, the reason is because your questioning is um so on point it make a porcupine blush, as I say in the book. You know, that's how that's what it is. And I think it is a sporting element, you know, it's it's um it's dynamic. Um but yeah, that that that's what I meant by it. And I think a lot of teachers should take that mantra and use it because we got to get the passion you know we're not i don't want teachers to be pushovers i want them to be mm-hmm. you know, teaching in my sport i'm going to be the best and um what the pinnacle for me was probably the, the the sort of my you know last dance with the chicago bulls my one was probably i had this trainee observing me and they'd requested to observe me because they'd seen me do the whole teacher-led questioning thing and they were like wow you know it really works um and they said oh you've changed what I thought you had to do to be a good teacher, because I did it purely with board pen. And he come to observe me and the computer had broken. So, you know, nightmare scenario right from the get go. But also the whiteboard had got like a big covering on it from the projector screen, it was covering it. So I had like, I had literally about 10, I had about 15 centimetres of whiteboard space. It was all like narrow, a narrow section of whiteboard. But because I knew Versailles well enough, my teacher-led question, I just pulled something out of the bag, you know, and it was like question after question, it was slam dunk after slam dunk, and then a couple of free throws, and then a, you know, an alley-oop as well, like, I just, I did do a good job on that, because I knew it really well, and believe me, in the past, um, you know, I've had lessons where I've been terrored on that same subject, so for me, um, that was my last dance with the Chicago Bulls um, in terms of that class, and the trainee was just um, very struck with what I'd done, but I did say to him, you know, I've taught this lesson about thirty-five times now, mm. um, but now it's it's my sport. So yeah, teaching is my sport. That's that's as best as I can encapsulate oh, it.
0: Definitely, I, I feel the very, very same. I loved it when I read that, and and I love that analogy with the with the last dance. What a program! If you haven't watched that, you really need to do. Michael Jordan is such a fascinating man. He was gonna he was gonna win the world championships, and nothing was getting in his way. <laughs> the, 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 the way that he talks about it and the examples, what what an athlete. But you're right, teaching is, is my sport. I love that one about the board. Give me a board pen and a whiteboard and class for the kids and I'll, I'll do my business. So what a way to close the interview. Thank you so much, Sam. So we're going to move on to my quick fire questions. These are three questions that I ask every guest. But before we do that, can you please point listeners in the direction where they must go and buy your book? and also highlight where they can contact you and chat further with you on social media
1: yeah so um get the book on amazon or get it from crown house um obviously if you're wanting to you know get a couple of copies or something you speak to me directly on twitter um asbo teacher on twitter um as well but if you if you wanted any advice or anything feel free to hit me up on twitter like i'm more than happy more than receptive um to chat and whatever but the book, I'll probably recommend getting it off um, Amazon, and maybe you know, give us a little star rating as well if you can. Um, obviously, not a one star. Please don't do that. Um, <laughs> give us, a, give us fire, a good one.
0: Five stars all the way. in the book, it, it's it's packed with so much gold. Um, it uh, the way that you've interwoven some hilarious stories and anecdotes. Backed up by the research and the wider reading that you've clearly done, and and interwoven that throughout, and real practical strategies for teachers to pick up and run with it—it's it's full of gold. So thank you so much um, for writing that, Sam, and and giving uh, giving the the hilarity, the humour, and also the realism of what happens in a in a classroom. So thank you. Uh, so we're now going go to go into the quick fire round three questions. Uh, when your initial sh- thought, short and snappy, what you believe in, what you think um, about some pretty wide topics. Are you ready for them? Yeah. So number one is, what makes great teaching for you?
1: Subject knowledge honed iteratively over time. So lots of lessons you've taught many, 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 many times. You just know it inside out and you know exactly what question to ask when, honed from iterative experiences of teaching over a long period of time.
0: Definitely, and that sums up a lot of what we've spoken about. So, number two there is what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom?
1: Textbooks and teacher led questioning, more retrieval practice, a better understanding of interleaving as well. And probably quickly, just to say performance versus learning, not always knee jerk looking at a teacher and saying, oh, the kids haven't performed well in a lesson, therefore they're not learning anything. Understanding that performance is a poor proxy for learning and that it's a long-term game that is very difficult to measure. And maybe go and get a copy of Chris Dulu's Making Good Progress so that you understand just how tricky a topic assessment can be. I think those things together. But yeah, teacher-led and textbooks and quizzing, I would say, would be the things.
0: Definitely. I love that. That three ideas of teacher-led, textbooks and quizzing. And a, great, a nod to a great book we mentioned earlier on. In the podcast my final question to you sam is if you could change just one thing in education what would that be
1: i read a really interesting tweet the other day from tom rogers and he said he proposed a new structure for schools whereby there would be a head teacher and then there would be a quite flat distribution of um, ordinary teachers who took on more responsibility Um, And I definitely would see other roles in that, too. Like, definitely we need pastoral managers and stuff, too, and and maybe some subject, the occasional subject lead or something like that. But I think that sort of structure would be excellent because you've got a head, then you've got the teachers taking responsibility across subject areas with a higher wage, potentially, which, you know, I think we could all get on board with that one, too. But um, I think that would be good because I think the issue is, that a lot of the time when we have a good idea in education, it's thoroughly distorted by accountability pressures because there's people above, people above, people above and loads of different layers where there's just ripe scope for miscommunication. You know, for instance, an example I told David Didow in that interview the other day, metacognition winds up becoming an A5 booklet that doesn't relate to any subject specifically and has to be used by all teachers, no matter what. Or if you hear that, self-reflection is good it has to be done in purple pen and there has to be a little page of the planner open at that time because we've got a trick Ofsted into making them think that we're outstanding so i think the i think that that tom rogers tweet that i read really interested me because i thought there are so many problems where you have these hierarchies of teachers where all that anyone ends up caring about at the top is a spreadsheet because that's all they see because they don't go in the classrooms anymore because why they don't need to So, yeah, I'd say a a structure like that, which is actually similar to a lot of other higher performing (laughs) education systems, isn't it? So I'd definitely say that, yeah, that sort of management structure I think would be excellent and it will also allow us to have more autonomy but also more responsibility over the shaping of the curriculum.
0: Definitely. I think you spoke with David Dido in that interview about kind of experienced classroom teachers who are just good at their job, giving them more responsibility because they'll just know. They'll know what's what, really. They know what teachers need. Um, So that brings us to a close. We've explored so much topics from the book. I really do encourage listeners to go out and buy it. They won't regret it. It was really fantastic. And thanks so much for giving up your time this evening um, to speak with me for the Becoming Educated podcast, Sam. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at Leslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming an Educated and I do hope to see you there.